Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. My name is David Breer and I recently had the pleasure of speaking at the Technology Disrupting Finance Seminar in Ulu, Finland. Now Ulu is one of Finland's fastest growing cities with a number of very innovative companies growing and entering into the global markets from there. You can watch the full video of my presentation at 11fs.co.uk or you can sit back and listen to the talk right here and right now. Enjoy. Lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah, there's uh, always an interesting thing of having on a slide that you're kind of a thought leader. It sort of sets a, an interesting tone for the rest of the presentation to, to live up to. My name is David Breer. I am the CEO of 11FS. Um, I've had quite an interesting career, if I do say so myself. I uh, work for a global usability agency, sitting through thousands upon thousands of hours of uh, user testing. I uh, established and ran the digital transformation program for a large global insurer, uh, did the exact same thing for a large global uh, bank. I uh, ran the digital banking practice for a, a large Indian offshoring organization. Um, I started up a startup and sold it off, hooray. So mortgage payments are a thing of the past, thank goodness. Um, and then most recently before I sort of say getting out of real jobs, I ran the uh, global digital banking practice for Gartner. And this was across uh, research, uh, consultancy and CXO, which is fun. Um, but there was a few things that sort of bugged me through it, which I, I, I thought, do you know what, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And I'll explain as we go along. Um, but I founded a, a little company called 11FS, um, and we did it on the basis of, of, of one main thing. And that was the mantra that we believe digital bank is only 1% finished. Uh, and throughout the presentation, I'll explain what I mean a little bit more by that. Um, what we did, though, was we pulled together what we thought uh, and what we still think is uh, the team for sort of delivering on the other 99%. So whether it be people like Jason Bates, uh, who was actually in... House of Lords right now discussing fintech with the UK House of Lords, who started both Monzo and Starling in the UK, both uh, very good challenge banks in terms of what they're doing. Uh, Simon Taylor, who ran uh, the blockchain R&D division for Barclays. Uh, people like Oliver Busman, who's the ex-CIO of UBS. People like Chris Skinner, who, uh, if you don't know Chris and you're in banking, you're probably reading the wrong sources of information in terms of sort of finding him, so I'd, I'd suggest going and Googling him. Even people like Sarah Mictel, who uh, bottom right is our CMO, who uh, we recruited from Apple. Um, so you pull together a really interesting team and actually really interesting things happen. And for us, it allows us to do a few interesting things. We get to build stuff, which is great. So uh, we're building out a couple of products. Uh, we get to build things, which is great. So we're rebuilding a few banks, we're building a couple of banks for M&Os or uh, retailers from scratch. Uh, we get to invest capital uh, and we have a, so it's a $150 million uh, investment fund 
investing in early stage blockchain distributed ledger, smart contract and fintech companies. Uh, and I talk a lot as well. Uh, the whole team talks a lot. It's not just me, honestly. Uh, but if you haven't checked out Fintech Insider, our, our weekly podcast, you really should do. Uh, downloaded in about 140 countries now. It's number one in most of the countries it's being downloaded in. Uh, so yeah, check it out. Why I'm here today is to talk about a random statement I made in an interview, which I have to say doesn't narrow it down that much in terms of random statements that I do make in interviews. Uh, but this one particularly sort of caught people's eyes. Uh, technology not going with finance is like saying macaroni doesn't go with cheese. Um, and the reaction that I kind of got to that was very similar to the reaction that I got to the Digital Bank is only 1% finished piece. It's very sort of polarizing. On the one hand, you'll get people who, uh, on the left-hand side of this, who believe that there is so much more opportunity. That with all of the technological advancements, with the process advancements, with the changes of customer expectations, that banking has got miles and miles to go. That there should be new products, that there should be new services. And then on the other side of things, you get the, the group of people who um, generally believe that digital is purely a distribution mechanism for analog products. What, one of the things that I always like to do at the beginning of a, a kind of a presentation is do a bit of a spot the difference. Uh, for anybody who's seen this before, hold the, uh, hold the answer for everybody else's benefit. So there's, there's 2017, where we are, and back in 1990, in the good old days of Britpop, where we were. Did you get them? Did you get the major difference? Would it, I, I do like a little bit of interaction. So would anybody like to guess what the major difference is between these two slides? We've gone from dark blue to paler blue. <laughs> That was very observant of you in terms of doing it, yeah. But what, uh, how about from a bank's perspective? Any idea? Huge amounts of money. So huge amounts of money were spent between 1990 and 2017 digitizing those organizations. And you know, just to go back to them slightly quickly here, it's, it's kind of underwhelming, isn't it, for that amount of money that was spent. And the, the thing that most sort of concerns people when I actually kind of put this up is most people believe that number is too low. You know, most people think it's a very conservative estimate about actually what it is that has been spent over that period of time. So it's pretty clear then that during that period, quite a lot of lipstick has been applied to quite a lot of pigs, which is worrying. And there's a bunch of reasons for this. You know, we're, we're seeing uh, regulation changes, we're seeing changes in trust, we're seeing legacy IT holding me back. If only it wasn't for my legacy IT, I could do all the wonderful things that you guys talk about. Most of that is bullshit, isn't it? You know, we, we, we sort of use a lot of these things as excuses for delivering what ultimately are just bad experiences to customers. And there is, it's undeniable. But I think there's one reasonably fundamental reason why uh, we've got to this position, position that we have. And I'm a bit concerned about it because it does fly slightly in the face of what's been said by, by a few people today. Um, and I, I kind of hold, I hold digitization kind of accountable for that which is a bit worrying, isn't it? If I, if I kind of explain why I mean that, we've gone through a, a bit of an evolution with regards to, to the services and the capability that's been, been delivered. Back in the good old days of branch bank, banking, we had a lovely sort of full range experience. We had people who knew who you were. We had people who didn't need like a database to remember this stuff, but knew how you had your tea and how old your kids were and what their names were. So the service was, was personalized. It was beautifully personalized, beautiful experience in terms of doing it. You could walk into the, bank, uh, the, the bank, banks, you could feel the thickness of the carpet, the experience that you got for it. The whole thing gave you a feeling of trust. Now, internet banking came along and actually all we got was a dumbed down branch experience. 
The personalization element was taken away from it. The, the data that was being produced and, and created was, was dumbed down. And worse than that, we got to mobile banking and we just did it again. You know, the experience that has been delivered has continually got worse and worse. So, you know, we went from paper statements to internet banking statements to mobile banking statements. Where's the evolution in this? Does this feel good enough? Do I, do I have to go back to the, the, the big scary number slide and say, does this feel like it's good enough to do it? Um, and I think the, the, the worrying thing is, like say, when you look at the, the money that was actually spent between these transition points, it's just terrifying. And the, the, the fundamental that comes to this, you know, the, the, the analog products being sold through digital channels is a fundamental problem in, in this area. And now you get the, the people with the, the lovely uh, brogues believing that that's the best that digital can, can do. Does anybody believe that that's the best that digital can actually offer? You do think it's the best that digital can offer? You guys are gonna have to fall on one side of this fence soon, I'm afraid. So, so for me, the fundamental thing is what is born digital versus digitized objects? You know, a, a digitized object, when we've seen, you know, I'm, I'm having a go at bankers here, but, but actually it's not just them that suffered from this problem. So if you look at the paper industry, you know, their first few attempts of actually digitizing paper was pretty poor. You know, what it was was a, a PDF on an iPad. There was absolutely none of the digital qualities being used for, for where we're at. And actually, this is exactly where we're at with, uh, with banking right now. You know, this is a, a Lloyds Banks website. It's a pretty good one. I left it when I left, so I can say it's a pretty good one. But fundamentally, it, it's selling the exact same products that that organization has been selling for about 250 years, which is sort of worrying. You'd kind of think in the, the name of progress that things would have moved on. But for me, this is the, the fundamental problem. It's kind of like Apple spending all of that money to develop the iPad, the iPhone, uh, iTunes, and all of the app stores in terms of doing it, and then still selling vinyl. It doesn't make sense, especially when you look at all of the advancements that we've seen through technology. You think of all of the multitude of different elements that are contained within the most, even most basic of smartphone that most of the population of the entirety of the globe actually carry around with them. We could be doing a lot more to make these products better. Um, so really, the, the, the sort of changing of this banking battlefield comes to a, an interesting point. You know, we, we have on the, the top left of this all of the legacy organizations. They have all of the customers, but predominantly most of the digital services are quite dumb. We have quite a few challenges, uh, the brand challenges that are coming to this space. And this is uh, people like M&Os, uh, people like the sort of Tesco banks, the supermarkets of the world. Less customers, not much more sophisticated from a uh, digital services perspective. We then get to a, a point where these guys are, are just about scale. You know, it's about sli getting slightly better services, but actually just gaining customers. We then start to get all of the, the startups. You know, this will be fintech startups. It will be the digital bank challenges that are coming through into this space. Now, they're, they're making a lot of noise, and I'll come to this a little bit later on in the presentation. Um, but arguably, most of these guys are below the line. And I mean below the line as in below the line of where they actually have any customers. Uh, you know, if you kind of look at the N26, big fan of N26, over that period of time, they've acquired 120, 130,000 customers. Uh, you know, CEO of Santander would probably stand up and say, I lose that many a week. Um, so in terms of the dent that's actually been made in, in the large banking organizations, these guys have got every right not to be scared yet. Um, we generally delineate these people in, uh, in the company by where their traditional core banking line sort of sits. 
the ones on the left of, left of this are uh, the N26s, the Atoms, these types of guys, where they're buying off-the-shelf packages. On the right-hand side of this, we've got some quite brave challengers like Starling and Monzo and even people like Sekaora who are building their own core banking capability themselves. On the left-hand side of this line, it's an acquisition race. Can I get big enough, quick enough to either be acquired or, or be destroyed? And on the right-hand side of this, it's about increasing that sophistication of capability um, while acquiring customers as well. Now, looming threat, as everybody sort of uh, alluded to over the course of the day, whether it's the Alibabas or the Apples or the Amazons or whoever it might be, is, is all of the, the kind of bigger boys. You know, these are the people who are kind of outside of the industry, the, the tech giants who have more money to spend on R&D, bigger customer bases, and can just outmarket anybody in the market that's, that sits here today. You know, if there's anybody um, who you should be fearful of, it is the Amazons, the Alibabas, because they, they can just outdo anything that a financial services company can do. So the real question comes to is, what is it that these legacy banks are kind of going to do? Because it's very difficult just to kind of move to the right. You've kind of got all of the customers that you could need. So it's either you move into to other markets, and actually there's a bunch of other markets that are open to um, taking the types of services or geographies to go into in terms of doing it, or you dramatically increase your, uh, your level of services that you're actually delivering. And by services, that can both mean the experience that's actually being delivered to a customer, or in addition, uh, dramatically reducing the operating cost of, of them. And I'd say both of those things are probably very sensible. So first up, I'd, I'd say the thing that the, these legacy organizations need to really sort of focus on is, is where do you start? This is usually the most paralyzing part of this journey in terms of what people do, is, okay, well, I like AI, I should do something in AI. No, don't do technology for technology's sake in terms of doing it. Equally, you know, I, I like to design stuff and create a customer proposition. No, don't start there either. And this is the problem, there's this sort of perpetual, which bit do I go with? Do I, do I make a strategy? Do I start with something small? Do I design something out? Do I pick some technologies? And it's this sort of vicious cycle of, of round and round that people kind of get into, especially when the, uh, the change is so significant that it requires fundamentally different ways of doing it. Next up in terms of uh, the, the change is actually how to set up your team. And this is actually a, a pretty significant problem in, in most of these organizations. When you say digital transformation, uh, most people kind of think of this type of picture. It's about how many thousands of people do I need? How do I align them? How do I make sure that everybody's tied behind my new magic agile process. And that's not really how digital gets done these days. Fundamentally, digital is a small team sport. What, what you need is more of an SAS mentality. You need the 10x developers, you need the 10x uh, user experience designers in terms of doing things. And then you only need two of them. You know, when you look at bigger uh, organizations that are making some significant dents, so this is a, a, a team picture of Monzo Bank in the UK. These guys with, I think it's 27 people, have built a, a, a bank that's probably, the current account is probably better than anyone that I've seen. That's amazing, right? That's how many people it takes to do something amazing. It doesn't require tens of thousands of people to actually deliver upon things. You do not need the Chinese army to, to maintain your core banking system that you uh, can't remember who put it in and nobody knows how to use. You know, things have dramatically kind of moved on from there. So, you kind of need to focus on building the legacy that, uh, that you're actually proud of. And this is a, a problem that most organizations are, are definitely in that have got any 
uh, level of heritage in terms of where we're at. You know, this is a much more adequate description of most places' core banking than, than any. You know, it's that rotten core in the middle of, of most organizations that massively limit what you need to do. Simple things, you know, sub-accounts in terms of um, setting up a, a business account are almost impossible if you're on a core banking engine that doesn't allow you to do those things. Some of the biggest banking organizations on the planet suffer from not having real-time core banking systems. And it's quite scary. You know, core banking should be the, the digital heart of everything that you're doing. It shouldn't matter if it's branch or telephony or, or digital channels or mobile. It should just be accessing the same services, the same capability, and delivering them to people in a, a compelling way. Now, this is a, a reasonably controversial one, and I always love doing this if there's any sort of leadership people in, in the room. But Fundamentally, the, the position that you get on this is, is the leadership that's required at the point where a country is in war, as opposed to when the country is at peace, is very, very different in terms of what you need. You know, the ability to motivate people behind you to do what you need them to do, to work in the way that they would do if they were working at a startup, is very, very difficult to do. You know, leadership is, is um, given where technology is and given where banks actually are, is really, really about understanding of how you've delivered these things before. And given technology is such a massive part of banks, it's quite scary that few, so few people in so, such senior positions in banks know so little about technology. You know, the statistics here, I found it quite interesting because they were um, actually uh, valuing uh, females with technology experience far higher than they were males with technology experience. So clearly guys were going to be sort of the, the dying out species over the next sort of uh, five to ten years in banking boards. But um, I, I think it was quite a, a sad state that, you know, in the UK we're only seeing about 12% of, of, uh, of bank boards have any level of professional experience. You know, that could be like a, a typing exam you did in high school. Do you know what I mean? Like it's quite, it's quite sad that there was such an absence of that. Given that the amount of money that's going into it, so how is how's decisions being made in this space? It's quite worrying. The next thing is is it's kind of the definition of insanity. You know, I'm sure lots of people have seen uh, you know people banging their heads against the same brick wall with the uh, the same piece. But the idea that you use the exact same suppliers to try and figure out the new view. How do you move this forward if you're just using the same pieces? You know, an example from my uh, old days, and if you kind of Look at the core banking piece. So when I was at Gartner, this was the uh, graph that you would see very often. Now, the, this is the, the view of the types of core banking systems that actually are, are the most uh, innovative, you know, in terms of completeness, in terms of ability to execute. Now, if I was to be asked the question of who were the most innovative, uh, most forward-thinking core banking systems on the, on the planet, these four are the four that I would pick. So the thought machine is uh, 26x Google engineers, uh, based on smart contracts, incredibly capable in terms of actually what they're delivering, and it's infinitely scalable in terms of where it goes. Uh, Lavaris, uh, made by a uh, really big bank, very, very good. Crucible, the one at the bottom, massive opportunities in terms of where they're going. Uh, and Mambu have been born out of uh, Africa. You know, they needed to create a low-cost core banking system that could scale to the size of Africa. None of those guys appear anywhere on here. So if I'm a global CIO of a, of a banking organization, I'm facing into a, a core banking system that needs replacing, I'm not going to see any of these guys. So the idea that actually you go back to the same suppliers with the same problems and expect a different outcome, that is the definition of madness. Um, the hardest thing to innovate is still the business model. And this has been sort of reiterated a couple of times today. It takes a hell of a lot of 
confidence in terms of what you're doing to let go of it. You know, the idea of monkeys don't let go of one uh, rope until they've grabbed hold of another rope. Um, that is the mentality that we see in leadership of, of banks. You don't let go of one business case until you're absolutely sure you've squeezed as much out of it as you can do and you move on to the next one. But I, I think the, the problem in that is that everybody around the edges is innovating most in the business models. It's how those services are constructed, how they're created, and how they're delivered to the customer that's important. So I guess in, uh, and to, to sort of make this visual, the, my experience and my, my sort of view of, of having worked in those different places and actually across financial services is over the sort of last 15 to 20 years, what's, what's happened is the financial side of financial services has got much bigger. And by that, we mean the targets have been uh, massively inflated. Based on the operating costs going through the roof, people have had to make more and more money in terms of what we're doing. Incentives have got a little bit wrong in terms of some organizations. You, know, you look at people like Wells Fargo. Um, they weren't bad people. They were badly incentivized with the wrong things. Um, and unfortunately, what's happened is the services have shrunk away and almost completely disappeared in some. Most of them have replaced them with financial products. So banking has become about selling financial products, not about delivering financial services. And that's quite a bad place to be, isn't it? If all you're concerned about is actually how many products you're selling, then who cares about customer experience, right? And I, and I think what this kind of comes back to, and my point around the, what was it, 200 billion, 300 billion, whatever the numbers are reasonably irrelevant, but what, what's actually been delivered through that 200 billion that's actually been spent is just an incredibly, incredibly commoditized, one size fits nobody experience of digital banking. Now, digital banking hasn't been invested in. It's only been the last three or four or five years that digital actually has been something about delivering an experience. Today, all of that money has been spent to take cost out of the organization. And if you're doing that, if you're spending all that money to take uh, cost out, who cares about the experience, right? It doesn't really matter. What you're doing is you're removing paper, you're removing people. Um, and at the point where we start trying to differentiate around the experience, you're left with the mess that you've got. And how do you move from that point? Now, you know, while banks have been doing this, we've got fintech players coming in and, and developing this type of system. This is the, the, the Tesla garage uh, that actually builds out the Tesla. It's kind of like an interesting sort of where's Wally because you can find one person in that whole thing. But this is kind of what fintech is trying to do. They're completely reinventing the processes and the practices to get to the point where you can start delivering services. So fintech's kind of got it nailed, right? Everybody, you think fintech's gonna win? No? So personally, I don't think they will. And I, and I think this is a matter of perspective, quite frankly. Um, so within fintech, there are successes and failures. You know, fintech, in the same way as any technology that's being sold to you, whether it be blockchain, whether it be AI, is not a panacea to fix all of your problems. It doesn't make all the bad people go away. So what you need to do, and if you look at the sort of history of fintech, you know, if you look at the, the sort of version one of this in terms of where we're going, we, we got the, the sort of feedors and the simples and the movens coming to this space. These are the sort of the household names that you would think of in terms of, in terms of doing it, right? Well, feedor got bought up by BPCE. You know, they essentially became a, a, um, an outsourced, the way I catch up. You know, feedor are great. They've done some really, really good things. But at the end of it, they were bought to help somebody else accelerate their problem. Simple, similar, BBVA bought these guys. You know, I think it was three or four days ago, there was a, uh, a notice put out there to, to basically say, sorry, everybody who's got a simple card, uh, you, that doesn't exist anymore. It's all being consumed into 
into BBVA and, and changed in terms of what will happen. And Moven, you know, Moven started as a, a bank in, in New York, but didn't really acquire many customers. It's turned into a, a kind of a software company uh, with a, you know, a very passionate and very good evangelist at the front of it in terms of doing it. But essentially, it's a PFM salespeople now. So if these guys are the, the kind of crowns of fintech in the first wave of doing it, you know, let's not buy every magic bean that we see in terms of kind of what, where we're going. And there's examples of it today. You know, Atom, you know, BBVA have come in for these guys already. You know, I think it's 38% of Atom is already owned by BBVA. Pretty impressive, right, you know, in terms of where they're going. But actually now, Atom's aspirations in terms of what they're there to do is a life raft for a very large banking organization. And that's an interesting place to be. You know, my, my fear for the first wave is they had very, very high aspirations for what they could do, but the timing was just very, very wrong. You know, if you look at the, the change in the dynamic of what we see today, with people like Solaris coming through as bank as a platform, people like Bud coming through as bank as a service, uh, Rails Bank very similar as a bank as a platform play, um, and then some of the, the challenger banks, the, the Monzos, the Tandems, uh, picking off very specific niches and delivering incredibly compelling experiences for those guys. For, so that, for me, is, is the, the key. It's pick a niche and it's deliver a very compelling experience for these guys. So I think this is kind of a fundamental question, really. Um, and I think with all of the different changes in the technology and all the different changes in the estates in terms of where it comes through, it's kind of what the banks actually need to be good at. And it's quite, it's quite a difficult question to sort of rationalize in terms of doing it. Well, it's like, obviously, they need to be good at banking. Um, but when you sort of look at where a bank actually is, you know, a bank is there to do a few main things, right? They're there to look after money, they're there to facilitate payments and lend money. And now, I appreciate that's incredibly simplistic in terms of where we're at, and all the investment bankers, if there are any in the room, will get really upset that I left out a whole bunch of stuff that they do. Um, but when you look at it, that's the basic thing, right? Now, around that, what's happened over the, the course of time is, is quite a, a significant growth. You know, there's been divisions being set up, there's been lovely pyramids and, and all these different sort of uh, divisions set up because actually everybody sort of builds a little em empire internally. You know, we've, we've got those three things, but then we've got all these auxiliary services that have been built around them. Now, in the future, what is it that you think you need to be best at? So do we think a, a, a bank is best at doing uh, marketing? Anybody think a bank is best at doing marketing? Or do we think Apple might be better at bank, uh, marketing? How about data? Who thinks banks are the best at looking after data and the best at manipulating data and looking at it and finding really insightful things? You do. Okay. You don't work for a bank, do you? <laughs> Go work for one and then ask that question again. Um, how about new product development? Anybody think banks are best at doing new product development? No. So at what point do we sort of figure that actually the best way to figure out where the, the next wave of banking would be would be to look at this, this list of things and then if they're not the best things that we can be good at, find somebody who's better at doing it than us. You know, there are very large organizations that have had taken um, a pretty extreme approach to this. You know, we've seen people like Commonwealth Bank in, in Australia with Michael Hart decide that IT, we're bad at IT. We can't do it better than somebody else. There are literally companies called IT companies to do IT. So outsource IT, they do it good. And once it's in a, a, a shape where actually we can uh, manage it, 
The cost efficiencies are at a position where actually they're uh, acceptable for what we need to do and our operating cost has come down, then bring them back in by all means. And, and I, I have to say, when you start going through this list, there are not many things on this list where you would go, yep, banks need to be best at doing that. And I think that's where the future of banking will go. I, I think the, the idea that a bank needs to do everything itself, that they need to create their own products, that they need to sell their own products, that actually all of the IT, all of the technology is all created by a bank in a bank, has gone away. And I think for the next decade, it will be about the people who have the ability, both from a technological and from an emotional and a leadership perspective, to accept that we're not the best at stuff. And actually, how do we bring in the organizations? How do we integrate the experiences? That really differentiates us from the market in terms of what we're doing. Now, the exciting thing is that if digital banking is only 1% finished, then there's 99% to go, isn't there? And for me, that's an incredibly aspirational messaging because that's the challenge for all of you guys in here. You know, we have to deliver on that 99%. And for me, that's the kind of fun of it. So thank you very much, that's me. Thanks again, Business Ulu, for inviting me to Finland. It's an amazing fintech scene happening there, and I will definitely be back soon. If you're interested in having me or one of the 11FS team talk at your next event, get in touch at hello at 11fs.co.uk. You can watch the full video of the presentation on 11fs.co.uk. But that's it for now. Speak to you soon.